Due to the nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, domestic abuse, and gore. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Today, Wendy and I will provide the facts while actors present scenes inspired by our research. Circumstances, coincidences. These are the factors that have brought me, a newspaper woman, into the Lamson case. Facts that make the perfect news build from a story point of view. Here am I, blonde, a divorcee. I have been injected into this case as the latest circumstance, the possible motive for the crime. In June 1933, Sarah Kelly was tired of her story being told by other reporters. She was a journalist too, so she tried to clear the air in an article for the San Francisco Examiner. She'd been dragged into a grisly crime drama, painted as the mistress to her friend David Lampson, who was accused of murdering his wife, Aline. Back then, Sarah knew what we'll learn today. Sometimes the evidence matters less than the story surrounding it. The stories people told about David and Aline Lampson were dark ones. But the question remains, were they true? This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on Aline Lampson, who was found dead in her bathtub with a massive head wound on Memorial Day, 1933. Last time we met Aline and her husband, David, a privileged pair of Stanford alums whose marriage may have been on the rocks. Today, we'll follow the rumors about Aline's life and death, meet a forensics pioneer, and track David's multiple trials to figure out who or what killed Aline. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Twenty-nine-year-old Aline Lampson was laid to rest in early June 1933, a week after she was found dead in her bath on Memorial Day. The service was held at a Palo Alto funeral chapel. Aline's friends and family from Missouri gathered to mourn her. But an important guest was missing, Aline's widower, David. He was a suspect in her death, so he was locked in a jail cell. Sheriff William E. Mig wouldn't let him attend the service. Mr. Lamson, would you please knock that off? Got your attention, didn't it? Look, Sheriff, this is all a mistake. And I'm here, Mensana and Corpore Sano. Huh? It's Latin for of sound mind and sound body. I'm an innocent man asking for a favor. Let me attend Aline's service. It's already started. I could still make it to the chapel before it's over. Not happening. For your own good. In case you forgot, your wife died mysteriously. And very violently. If you go, you could be attacked by a mob, or mobbed by reporters, or have a public breakdown. I won't. I'm... Perfectly calm. Maybe a little too calm. You don't get to tell me how to grieve. And you don't get to give me orders. Now, I've got to get going. I didn't get to see her face. What? When I pulled Aline from the tub, she slumped in my arms. All I saw was the back of her head, bleeding out on my chest. I ran for help, and I never got to see her face again. To say goodbye. Now when I think of Aline, all I see is a blood streak on her skull. I'm sorry. I can't help. But I promise, if it turns out you're innocent, I will deeply regret this moment. Yes, you will. David didn't get to see the Stanford chaplain preside over Aline's memorial, the same one who performed his marriage ceremony. He didn't get to see Aline in her wedding gown a final time. He didn't get to say goodbye. It felt like his life was falling apart completely, and the only thing holding it together was his older sister, Dr. Margaret Lampson. Margaret took custody of David and Aline's toddler, Bibi, and told the little girl that her father was in the hospital and that her mother had just gone away for a long, long time. Margaret didn't just handle David's domestic issues. Before Aline was buried, Margaret hired criminologists to parse evidence and examine her wounds. Aline's autopsy showed four lacerations on the base of her skull. Any one of these injuries might have been enough to kill her. Maybe Margaret wanted a second opinion when she brought in her old professor, Dr. A.W. Meyer, to look at the body as well. 
He ran Stanford's medical school's anatomy department, and he'd be a powerful ally when David's case went to trial. But his findings probably weren't to Margaret's liking. According to Meyer, it looked like Aline's hair had been violently pulled, and he theorized that those lacerations meant she'd been killed by four blows to the head. Blows that could have come from the 10-inch metal pipe investigators found in the ashes of the trash fire that David burned the morning Aline died. It rested near a piece of cloth. Both had possible bloodstains. It didn't look good for David, but Margaret believed in his innocence, and so did his friends and neighbors. As June went by, it was likely up to Margaret to keep David informed on trial preparations no matter how bad things seemed. I brought the paper, like you asked, but I'll warn you. Everyone's talking and no one's saying nice things. Looks like your baby brother ended up famous after all. How can you joke? If I don't laugh, I'll cry. Is there really not any good news? Mm, A student says he saw a strange man in shabby clothes lurking near your house on Memorial Day. Good. Uh, I mean, not good, but maybe he did it. Well, I don't think the police took the story seriously. There's no evidence of a break-in or robbery, and there's the pipe. Oh, that pipe was just part of my trash pile. But about this lurker, maybe he looked into the bathroom window, like a peeping Tom. Aline got scared, jumped out of the tub, and slipped. I could see that. Aline was sick, Margaret. She was in a hot bath. You know heat made her feel faint, and she had weak ankles. I bet you anything she fell or or hit her head. And I just didn't hear it in time. That's... plausible. Plausible, huh? Do I need to convince you too? Of course not, but not everyone's in your corner. Elaine's brother, for example. Frank? I think the tabloids swayed him. He'll wait until after the trial, but Frank wants to adopt BB. Race her in Missouri away from all this. No. Elaine wanted the Lampsons to take care of BB if anything happened. You or Mom or Hazel. Frank knows it. Yes, David, and we're all ready to fight, but are you? I'm sorry, but you're acting like this is all some silly mix-up. Because it'll work out. I'm not some degenerate. People know I'm a good husband, a Stanford grad with a good job and a great reputation. That reputation may get you hanged, David. Just because I'm well off doesn't mean I'm a- A scion of the elite who kept his fancy job while this country suffered the depression? Who cheated on his sickly wife with a blonde divorcee, then bashed her head in with a pipe? That's the story they're telling, and you represent everything that's unfair to a lot of people, so they may not be fair to you. Do you understand that? I... I I do. Good. So tell me, is any part of that story true, David? None of it. I didn't kill Aline, and I never cheated. I don't even know a blonde divorcee. Scratch that. Sarah Kelly's divorced, but she's just a friend. She lives all the way in Sacramento. Well, the police will be questioning her, if they haven't already. And when they do, I hope to God your stories line up. Until Sarah told her side of the story, no one was sure whether David's old pal would help acquit him 
or convict him. Coming up, a forensics analyst's unusual take. Hi, listeners. This week on my series, Conspiracy Theories, we're examining the life, career, and controversies of newspaper tycoon Robert Maxwell. 30 years before his daughter, Galen Maxwell, made headlines for grooming and trafficking underage girls for billionaire Jeffrey Epstein, Robert would mysteriously disappear from his personal yacht, only to be found later dead. How far would one man go to achieve influence and power? And would that ruthless quest ultimately result in his demise? This week on Conspiracy Theories, catch our two-part episode on media baron Robert Maxwell. Listen free only on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. In June 1933, Sheriff Howard Hangman Buffington was convinced that David Lamson killed his wife. The prosecution, led by Deputy District Attorney Alan Lindsay, thought the same. But they still needed to figure out David's motive. Eventually, the search brought the hangman to Sarah Kelly, an old friend from David's Stanford days. The hangman questioned Sarah, but she painted a picture of innocence. Yes, David took trips to see her, but only because she worked in newspaper ad sales at the Sacramento Union. They were collaborating on a gardening book that David's employer was publishing. Yes, David sent Sarah flowers, for her to photograph for the paper. And while Sarah did have David over for dinners, she lived with two married couples who joined them. These were friendly group meals. Still, Sarah may have been rattled when she learned just how much the hangman knew about her interactions with the Lamsons. Miss Kelly, I see you called David the day before his wife died. Now, did you talk to your pal Aline too? Or did you just want her husband? I called to tell Dave our column was canceled. You sound sad about that. I was. It was a fun little project. Maybe you should have talked to Aline on the phone. That way she wouldn't have had to write you that letter. <sighs> so, you know about the letter. <laughs> I'll be up front. Since I know this is where you'll poke your snout next, yes, I got a letter from Aline the day after Memorial Day, and yes, I already threw it away. I... you threw it away? I check most mail after I read it, unless it's from my fiancé Paul in Mexico, the man I'm actually involved with. Yeah, I hear he looks a lot like David. You must have a type. I do. Single men. Now cut to the chase, I'm on a work deadline. You want to know what Aline wrote, right? Wrote? I mean, write. It was a sweet note. Aline said she heard I might come work with Dave at the Stanford Press in the fall and that she'd be happy to see me. 
Shucks. What a sweet story. Had Aline written to you before? No. Weird. If you were such old pals... We were... fond acquaintances, if you want to get granular. David and I were closer friends. Close enough that Aline had to mark her territory? Maybe her note wasn't so sweet. Maybe that's why you chucked it. No, I just didn't think it was important when I... (sighs) Look, I don't believe a man like Dave could have killed Aline. Because Aline wasn't jealous of me. Because Dave doesn't love me. Well, who says you were the only flower in Dave's bouquet? And just because he doesn't have the hots for you doesn't mean he's not a killer. While trying to prove that Sarah had come between David and Aline, investigators also followed up on whispers that David had a temper. The Lanson's nanny, Dolores, publicly stated that the couple had a strong marriage. But if you remember from last week, she also wrote letters to her boyfriend, where she detailed the Lamson's fights. We are not sure why she didn't tell detectives about the arguments. Maybe she just didn't see them as that unusual. Even happy couples disagree at times. But then an ex-nanny, Clara Malwitz, came forward to say Aline was afraid of David's violent outbursts. Clara had only worked for the Lamsons for a few weeks before being let go. It's possible she was just disgruntled. But either way, a seed of doubt was planted. Another seed took root when news got out that a teenage David was responsible for a friend's death. It was a tragic hunting accident, but lots of people probably just skimmed the salacious article titles. When it came to the story of Aline's death, a soap opera in the papers, David was guilty in the court of public opinion. If his legal team wanted to prove his innocence, they had to pray that physical evidence could exonerate him. David needed hope, and it came to him in the form of a unique investigator. David, meet Dr. Edward Oscar Heinrich, the Sherlock Holmes of Berkeley. Berkeley? As a Stanford man, that sends a chill down my spine. Well, I hope we can work together despite the chasm that divides us. And I'm delighted that you can still crack wise. A jury will love your detached, ironic attitude. It so befits a grieving husband. Excuse me? Margaret, who is this guy? This guy was Alameda's chief of police. But now I work in a forensics laboratory out of Berkeley, pardon the mention. I served as a witness in hundreds of cases. You could say I'm known for solving crimes in unusual ways. Tell him about the baker, Dr. Heinrich. (laughs) A priest up in coma was kidnapped and killed. I remarked that the ransom note was written in ornate text, like you'd see on personalized cakes from bakeries. You know, chocolate on buttercream that says something like, sorry for your loss, Mr. Lamson, which I am. Thank you? Lo and behold, I was right. The killer was a baker. So what, you're going to solve Aline's murder with parlor tricks? Not tricks. Blood spatter analysis. A technique I've pioneered in the U.S., even if some fogies don't believe in it. Luckily, your house is drenched in blood. Don't remind me. Ah, but blood is our friend, Mr. Lamson. Blood tells the truth. Give me a room awash in gore, and I'll use my trusty ball of string to trace the dribbles and dots back to their point of origin, the wound. 
Then, I can determine its angle of impact and whether the impact was accidental or not. Of course, the story of your wife's death is garbled since the police and neighbors decided to traipse around the scene and mop. Still, it is possible to reconstruct the events that led to her demise. I'll believe it when I see it. Believe it. I went to your house a few days ago, and I have preliminary results. I think your wife fell and hit her head. I think... you're innocent. Really? That's... <laughs> that means a lot. There is one hiccup. What? The prosecution's analyst has also been to your home, and he's come to the opposite conclusion. Over the summer, Dr. Heinrich conducted a joint investigation of the lamps and bathroom with the prosecution's pathologist, Dr. Frederick Prosher. Both were as qualified as they were cocky. They would be star witnesses at the trial, and they had to be as persuasive as possible in pre-trial arguments. Prosher spoke first. It's plain as day. Poor Mrs. Lampson's horrible injuries were caused by four death blows, each from the pipe they found in Mr. Lampson's trash fire. Both the pipe and the piece of cloth beside it had stains. Blood stains. I have no idea which regions my esteemed colleague Dr. Prosher used, but a benzidine and a leukomalachite green test indicate that the cloth stain isn't blood. As for the pipe, the mark is likely mere rust or dirt. But remember, Mr. Lamson's bathroom was drenched in blood. That amount could only come from a savage beating. No. If Mrs. Lamson hit her skull and ruptured an artery, she'd bleed just as much. Furthermore, I tested the blood on David's shirt. It was hemolyzed, or in layman's terms, washed. The blood cells had burst open, probably from mixing with bathwater, after David pulled his wife from the tub. If he were present at the time of her death, the blood on his shirt would be arterial blood, straight from the source. Unless the arterial blood got washed when he got wet from the tub. Besides, there was arterial blood on the coat and pants that hung on the bathroom door. Maybe he was wearing them when he killed her. I don't believe he was. And the blood on those clothes helps my case. How so? I've conducted crime scene recreations using my assistant's wife as a stand-in for the deceased. I've got photos if you'd like to peruse. If David hit the underside of his wife's head, he'd have had to stand in front of the door. And as such, there wouldn't be blood spatter on the coat and pants that hung from it. There's no way to know exactly where that wife killer stood. I'm not done. Now, blood spatter marks have tails to them. Think of them as exclamation points. The tails indicate the direction the blood sprayed, and on those hanging clothes, the tails point up. This splatter stuff could be bunk science for all we know. The tails point up, which means the blood came from below, like from the sink where she hit her head. He's lost his mind. How the hell could she hit her head four times? The ridges, you fool. The porcelain sink's edge is decorated with four ridges. Ridges that line up with the four wounds on Mrs. Lamson's skull. She got all four injuries at once when she slipped 
and fell. As compelling as this argument was, Heinrich faced an uphill battle when preparing evidence for the trial. He was using forensic methods that most people, even police, weren't familiar with. Still, he was convinced he could sway a jury. He even built a model bathroom to use with his recreation photos, which he was eager to show off at the trial. The model showed the ridged edge of the sink and its close proximity to the bathtub. Looking at the room, it's much easier to believe that Aline could have slipped, hit her head on the sink, and landed in the tub. Which is why it was a crushing death blow when Judge Robert Sire ruled, Most of Heinrich's research would not be admissible in court. We imagine it was pretty painful when Heinrich told David the bad news. I don't understand. Judge Sire and the prosecutors say my experiments aren't valid. Now, the fools say that I gathered my evidence too late after your wife's death, and that recreating the accident in court won't prove anything. I thought your blood spatter stuff was cutting edge. It is! Someday the whole world will use it to solve crimes. But for now, everyone is just so short-sighted. The defense's star witness was effectively muzzled. And without Heinrich's evidence at the trial, it seemed even less likely that David would win. Coming up, David's story reaches unexpected heights. And now, back to our story. On August 24th, 1933, a working-class jury gathered to decide the fate of a Stanford golden boy. The deck was stacked against David Lampson. The prosecution found Dr. Heinrich's forensics too unorthodox and nixed his reenactment. This made it much harder to explain his theory that Aline slipped as she tried to get out of the tub and cracked her head on the sink. There was also confusion about the hemolyzed blood on David's shirt, otherwise known as washed blood. Washed, in this case, meant diluted by bathwater. But some jurors misunderstood the term. They thought it meant that a murderous David was trying to wash the blood off like a guilty man would. Heinrich was able to testify about the pipe, the supposed murder weapon, he insisted that there wasn't blood on it. But the pipe still proved to be a powerful weapon for the prosecution. In a surprise twist, Dr. A.W. Meyer, whom Margaret Lampson had hired for the defense, testified that Aline died from four separate blows, the kind that could have come from the pipe. This likely felt like a betrayal to David and his sister. The pipe was also used as an unsettling prop. Prosecutor Alan Lindsay wielded it while displaying pictures of Aline's body and reading a passage from Oliver Twist, in which a man beats a woman to death with a pistol. To hammer his point home, he rammed the pipe against the jury box. Lindsay moved on to scandalous stories about David that had peppered the papers. 
like the fact that he'd killed a friend when he was a teenager. He was adamant that David was capable of murder, even as witnesses like realtor Julia Place and neighbor Hallie Brown insisted David was bewildered after he found Aline. He didn't seem like someone who'd just beaten his wife to death. Lindsay countered. David was an actor who'd done plays in school. Maybe he was playing a grieving husband. Prosecutor Lindsay also made a meal of David's possible affair with Sarah Kelly. Though she wasn't called to the stand, her presence was still felt in the form of damning evidence. See, investigators had found love poems from Sarah in David's drawer. Life is such fun, my dear, that even though occasionally across the face of our bright sea, our happiness, there comes a shadow of delay and separation. Yet deep in those hearts that worship you, my dear, there shines a glow of warm content. David's team had a good rebuttal. Sarah sent David the poems because she wanted his feedback before trying to get them published. After all, David worked in publishing. Sarah had even left her own critiques in the poem's margins. Ugh, lousy, but you get the idea. Changed rhythm in mid-passage. The poem's yearning for a long-distance lover did bring to mind David's trips to see Sarah in Sacramento. But remember, Sarah had a fiancé in Mexico. Still, the prosecution cobbled together a narrative that took into account David's seemingly shifty behavior, his bond with Sarah, and Aline's poor health. One final piece of evidence was needed to solidify the scenario. If you recall from last time, Sheriff Hangman Buffington found a sanitary napkin of Aline's in the bathroom with no blood on it. With that, prosecutors wove together the tale of what may have happened on that fateful Memorial Day. The following recreation is inspired by their narrative. Whew, it's nice and quiet without BB crying. It's just us, Aline, like the old days. Dave, no. I'm not in the mood tonight. I'm... On my period. Could you sleep in the nursery? I need space. <sighs> Feel better. The next day, David came inside on a break from gardening. When he visited Aline in the bath, he found out how much her affection for him had cooled. Ugh, David, close the door. You'll let out the steam. And what are you doing with that pipe? I wanted to check if I could replace the leaky one under the sink with it. I... What's that? My pad? It's clean. Observant. That Stanford degree really paid off. Last night, you said... You lied to me? No, I... Fine. I lied. I'm surprised you're even mad. What, did Sarah not put out in Sacramento? Sarah's just a friend. Oh, sure, Dave, sure. I wonder if you'll be able to keep up the Just Friends Act when she's at the press. She'll just be working for me. Oh, I can see it now. Late nights, leaning over your desk, blonde curls falling over your shoulder, asking you to read another awful poem. Aline, shut up. 
while I'm at home with a crying kid and an atrophying brain. Stop it, Aline. I mean it. Trapped in a horror story with the opposite of Prince Charming. Shut up! After killing Aline, David calmly walked out and tossed the pipe into the trash fire he'd been burning. He gardened and chatted with neighbors, seemingly carefree, until it was time to use his acting training to put on a show. Oh my god! My wife's been murdered! Essentially, the prosecution argued that Aline was upset about David's affair. So she rejected his sexual advances by lying about her period. And that sent him into a murderous rage. Now, this was all just a theory and a pretty flimsy one at that. But for a jury driven by the drama, it was effective. After a three-week trial and eight hours of deliberations, on September 16th, the jury ruled David was guilty of murder in the first degree. He was sentenced to hang at San Quentin State Prison. When he learned his fate, David told the judge. I know in my heart that I've been a good husband to her. I have done her no harm. I am as innocent of her death as you yourself. That is all. It was typical David, intelligent and heartfelt, but oddly sedate. Not the kind of thing that inspired sympathy, especially when the prosecution painted him as an angry, abusive philanderer. When David was carted off to San Quentin, he left chaos in his wake. His lawyer, Edwin Ray, and prosecutor Alan Lindsay had a public fistfight after the trial. It's crazy to think about, but everyone was taking sides. The case tore a rift in the Stanford community. Many faculty members had served as witnesses for the prosecution, while others supported the defense. Those who believed in David's innocence knew they had to stop him from hanging. And that's how the Lamson Defense Committee was born. David and Aline's friends in the English and philosophy departments sent out appeals for help with legal expenses and pleaded with criminologists to support Dr. Heinrich's theory. David's attorneys assembled a 600-page brief to appeal the verdict, while David's Stanford friends printed The Case of David Lamson, a 100-page defense that boiled down case specifics so the public could understand it. It was signed by writers, doctors, priests, professors, and law enforcement officials like former Berkeley police chief August Vollmer, a who's who of the Palo Alto elite, which on the one hand is inspiring. It makes you think David must have been a trustworthy guy. Or you could see it as a bunch of elites closing ranks to protect their own and preserve Stanford's reputation. Either way, it worked. After filing the appeal with the California Supreme Court, David's legal team got an answer on October 13th, 1934, nearly a year later. David would get his second trial, even if the Supreme Court judges weren't necessarily on his side. According to Chief Justice William Waste, 
Three justices, including himself, felt the evidence wasn't strong enough to rule out his innocence. After 11 months on death row, David was transferred back to Santa Clara County. Now was the time for him to turn the tide of public opinion in his favor. But he wasn't as cooperative as his loved ones hoped. What do you mean you won't see Bibi? She's asking questions. She's three and she won't buy this daddy's in the hospital story much longer. There's no guarantee I'll ever be back in her life. It'd be hard to see her and even harder to have to leave her again. But some press photos of you two reuniting and embracing, it might change some minds, open some hearts. So this is about a press angle? It's about giving us something to work with. You're a cipher, Dave. In your letters to your supporters, you sound like you're thanking them for buying raffle tickets. That's just who I am. I already feel sick exploiting me and Aline's most private moments. What else do you want me to do? Beg? Cry? Yes, damn it, Dave. You're a writer, actor, and salesman. Why the hell is it so hard for you to sell that you're an innocent, grieving man? You act like you don't feel anything at all. Because I don't. Ever since the verdict, I... I haven't. They say when a bullet hits you, you don't feel pain. Not at first, just numbness. And I'm trying to stay numb for as long as I can. I don't know what I'm going to do when it really starts to hurt. Hanging will hurt worse. David's second trial began on February 2nd, 1935. This one lasted for three months, and Team Lamson seemed to have luck on their side. Sarah Kelly appeared on the stand to deny her affair with David and insist that he was happy with his wife. Dr. Heinrich was allowed to build a model bathroom in the court this time. It was the story he tried to tell at the first trial, but now he had the tools to tell it in a much more compelling manner. Despite all this, the trial resulted in a hung jury. Three jurors felt David was innocent, while nine insisted he was guilty. David's third trial kicked off in November 1935, but it was canceled due to jury selection issues. His fourth started in January 1936, almost three years after Aline's death. And it ended in another hung jury. Three for acquittal, nine for conviction. Everyone involved wondered, would David be subjected to another trial? Would the gory details of Aline's death be trotted out to yet another jury? Surprisingly, the answer was no. In the spring of 1936, the prosecution dropped all charges against David. Maybe they were worn out, or maybe it just got too expensive. After all, they'd spent nearly 70 grand, enough to buy a dozen houses, trying to prove that David was a murderer. After almost three years on death row, David Lampson was a free man. But he didn't fade into anonymity. He got more famous. 
See, while waiting to die on death row, David wrote about life in prison and the men he met there. He was notoriously stoic when it came to his own situation, but his essays give a sense that he was in existential angst. I would like to know clearly, explicitly, and finally, just what people expect of a prison. Is its purpose to reform, to punish, to prevent, to, to rehabilitate? What? Does anyone know? His writings became a book called We Who Are About to Die, a hit upon its release, and not just because it was a book by a possible wife killer. The New Yorker called it profoundly important for how it exposed prison corruption and gave Americans a rare glimpse into the human side of convicts. It's ironic. David was never great at persuading the public of his own innocence, but his writing opened hearts and minds across America. With Bibi, David moved to Hollywood to work on the film version of his book. He later remarried to Ruth Rankin, a writer for a film magazine. David worked in movies and TV and had almost 100 short stories published before he died in 1975 at the age of 72. David and Aline Lamson were writers. They fell in love at college while studying, trading, and telling stories. But they couldn't control their own stories. And the more the players in this crime drama bucked against the roles they were assigned, the more they suffered. David Lamson may not have been the cheating, murderous abuser that the media painted him as, but he also had trouble fitting into the part of a grieving husband. Sarah Kelly was engaged to another man and insisted that she and David were friends, but because of her status as a divorcee, a career woman, and an attractive blonde, she had to share the blame for Aline's death. Dr. Heinrich tried desperately to tell his own story with new techniques, but nobody was ready to hear it. Then again, after it was adopted as a common practice in the 20th century, spatter analysis was deemed to be somewhat unreliable. So maybe all of Heinrich's hard work only served to unwittingly cover up a murder. The story we're missing is Aline's. Only she could say if that terrible Memorial Day was the result of a marriage gone sour or a tragic accidental fall. Sadly, her tale and her truth will forever go untold. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Aline Lampson, amongst the many sources we used, we found California's Lampson Murder Mystery by Tom Zaniello and American Sherlock by Kate Winkler Dawson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Brian Golub. It stars Charlie West, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Samia Mounts, Zelda Khan Black, Joe Hernandez, and Cameron Nicod. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. How far would one man go to achieve influence and power? And would that ruthless quest ultimately result in his demise? This week on Conspiracy Theories, catch our two-part episode on the life, career, and death of disgraced media mogul Robert Maxwell. Listen free only on Spotify.